Stand in the gate of the, of the Lord's house and proclaim this, this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go on after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go on to my place. Go now to my place that is in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. See what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I, speak, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do these to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast and I will cast you out of my sight. I will cast all of your kinsmen, all of your offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for this people, or lift up and cry a prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods, provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? It is not themselves to their own shame. Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will pour out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave to them, Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsel in the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward, not forward. From that day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all of these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall go and you shall say to them, 
This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished and it is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have gone evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, mm. nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will be no more called Topeth, the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury Topeth, because, of, because there is no room no, elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. None will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of his officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of the tomb, and they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven, which, have, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped, and they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family. In all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. Father, we pray that as we come into this text this morning that you will help us, that your Holy Spirit will fill us, give us understanding, that we might see Christ, that we might love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Transatlantic slave trade consisted of four centuries of stealing and selling Africans across continents. Uh, the crazy thing for us as Christians, uh, the crazy thing about it is these man-stealers for four centuries were, for the most part, professing Christians. What do we make of that? We will talk more about that a little bit tonight at our evening service as well as next Sunday morning uh, at our Sunday school class at 9.30. But for the sake of time this morning, I wanted to read, if I can find it, a uh, word from Frederick Douglass. Just give me a moment here. Frederick Douglass said this, by the way, he was born in 1818 as a slave, uh, lived in Baltimore, uh, was born in, on the eastern shore. And this is what he said about these, uh, these so-called Christians. He says, first, I love the pure, peaceable, impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, 
cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. And then he goes on about it. We're going to read this tonight. But then I love, toward the end, he kind of comes back. Just in case anybody gets confused and thinks that Frederick Douglass is saying so, get rid of Christianity. He comes back and he clarifies and he defends his own faith and he says this. What I've said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. It's possible to live like a pagan and to, fu- to take safety in your religious rituals. It's possible to completely ignore and, and have no concept of the presence of God, to disobey God and His Word, yet to take safety in the fact that you're in church every Sunday, that you have a building with a steeple on it, and a man that stands behind a big giant piece of wood and lectures. And we think, we're okay. Now, in, in retrospect, hindsight, 2020, you know, we can look back and we can see the hypocrisy that many Christians saw that day, including Frederick Douglass. Sometimes it's harder to see our own hypocrisies, isn't it? Is it possible for us to live like a pagan, yet to take safety in our religious rituals, in the fact that we go to church every Sunday, read my Bible, I pray, I talk to God, therefore I am okay. I want to talk to you this morning on this theme, which we're going to call bad religion. Everybody say this together, bad religion. We could define bad religion as this, a religion that is crafted to suit our own fleshly desires, twisting scripture, and then therefore finding safety in our religious rituals. We make up a religion that meets what we want. We twist scripture to do so, yet we find safety in the fact that we go to church every Sunday or we we say our prayers or we read our Bible, the religious rituals, the practices. Now in Jeremiah, we just came out of last week three chapters of poetry, which if you were here last week, you might recall a lot of imagery That was basically just saying how bad things are in Israel. And now as we get into chapter 7, in verse 2 right here, we see that God tells Jeremiah to preach a sermon. This is famously known as the temple sermon. Because as you can see there, he says, stand in front of the gates of the temple. The temple is a building that was built in the Old Testament to be the house of God, where God's presence would dwell. And there would be various things that would happen at the temple that God uh, prescribed for them to recognize and worship Him. And so he wants him to stand at the gate of the temple and to preach this sermon, which starts in verse 3. And unlike my sermons that I preach, Jeremiah's sermon is literally a direct word-for-word from God Himself. 
And so Jeremiah then stands at the temple and he speaks God's word. And the, the sermon basically has two points. So, so maybe those of us who like three-point sermons, we need to amend our ways and consider a two-point sermon, which is what God gives Jeremiah. So for that reason, I have a two-point sermon for you today. But let me give you Jeremiah's two points here first before I get into my two points. First, the, the first point is, what was that? For, uh, come on, you're, you're being picky now. Give me a break. I, uh, the first point is this, amend your ways, change your ways, is what he says. Look at verse 3. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. I think place there is not referring to the temple, but the land. In verse 23, he says, I made a covenant with your fathers, uh, and if they were to obey me, I'd let you have the land. If you want to live in this place, God is the, the, the land owner. He's the landlord. And if you want to keep the land, you've got to abide by the covenantal stipulations. So amend your ways if you want to stay in this land. Otherwise, otherwise, Babylon is coming in to remove you. In verse 5 and 6, he sort of opens this up and explains this, and he explains that they're, they're, like, they need to change. We see here that they are oppressing the immigrants among them. God loves immigrants. We see that they're oppressing the fatherless, the orphans. When we look at the foster care system in Baltimore, we've got to recognize God loves orphans. We see that they're oppressing the widows, which was an easy demographic to oppress back in the day. Weak. The, the, the weak, th those who have lost, those who are alone, who have no one to provide for them in this society. Basically what he's saying is, is you're, you're taking advantage of everybody you can possibly take advantage of. You've got to change your ways. In other words, if we neglect God, we neglect each other. We can't treat God a certain way and expect to treat others a different way. The way that we love each other, the way that, our, that we express our care for each other flows out of the way we trust, uh, uh, treat God. And family, we've seen this, all, uh, we see this all the time. Someone falls away from the Lord, they begin to delight in sin. What happens to their church relationships? They usually get treated like trash. Meaning, once we reject God, we begin rejecting everybody who, who speaks for God in their life. As well as begin taking advantage of other people. Those of you who, who, who are in the workplace, you've seen this, haven't you? People taken advantage of. It's because we're a godless society. Secondly, his, his second point is to stop trusting in fake religion. Look at verse 4. He says, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. He repeats it three times. This is like a, a phrase that they probably had come up with, uh, some kind of ritualistic phrase that would, that would kind of bring about the presence of God or something. We don't know exactly the story behind it. But don't trust in this fake religion that you've come up with. Meaning, don't just simply assume that God is here. 
because you repeat, this is the temple of the Lord three times. When things get bad, we all look for something to find safety in. You know that? Like, money's going down, we, we look for something to, to just root into to give us some kind of financial safety, or if, um, my bad, if uh, there's a nation that is a big threat, we look to our Department of Defense for safety. For Israel, as Babylon is growing in, uh, as a threat, they're looking to the temple for their safety. So what they're saying is, is yeah, I hear Babylon's a threat. That's going to be a problem. That could be a problem. But what do we have? We have the temple of the Lord. So nothing's going to happen to us because we have Yahweh. Does that make sense? So he's saying, like, this is, this, what, you're, what you've come up with here is a fake religion. That you can just live however you want to live, oppress everybody you want to oppress, and just assume that because you have the temple, that you don't have to worry about this warning that you are receiving through the prophet Jeremiah. And things are really bad. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, he says, as for you, speaking of Jeremiah, don't even pray for this people. Could you imagine if God says that about you? Like, Joel is so cold, and he's so far gone, and he is so hard. Mike, don't even pray for Joel. May God never say that about me. God is just saying, like, it's that bad. There, There is an intercession for them. Judgment is just simply coming. It's crazy, isn't it? Like, I want you to preach this sermon. And he says, and by the way, they're not going to listen to you. But preach it anyway. Let me show you how, things, how bad things are. Look at verse 18. So what's happening is they've embraced this whole uh, uh, cultic worship. They've turned to these different cults and worshiping these different idols, and they have these cultic rituals that they've brought into their worship of God. Meaning they're still worshiping Yahweh. They would say, oh, we believe in Yahweh, the God of our fathers. And they would go through all of their worship to Yahweh and all of the sacrifices, but they've included the cultic worship, the cultic rituals, the worship of other gods in it. So, for instance, in verse 18, we see that this cultic, these cultic rituals are somewhat of a family affair. So right there he says, the children gather wood. The fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. Which means the whole family is together in rebellion against God. He goes on. In verse 30, here we see that they have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They've combined their cultic worship with the worship of Yahweh, and they're literally bringing these cultic objects into the temple and, 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 and uh, uh, sort of perverting the pure worship of God. We see in verse 31 that this cultic worship is bloody. And I want to pause here for a second so you can see how bad things have gotten. It says they've built the high places 
of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. For what purpose? Do you guys see the purpose there? For these high places they, they built? Does anybody see that? It's like mind-blowing. What's the purpose? To burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. Which, he says, I did not command. And I didn't even think of it. It's not even something that would cross my mind, God says. This is a well historic, uh, historically um, uh, researched problem of the ancient world. The gods of Malek would require uh, the sacrifice of children. This was addressed in the law. God specifically said, I do not allow you to sacrifice your child to Malek. In this valley of Topheth, they built these fireplaces, if you would. Another word, Topheth means both shame and fireplace. They built these altars of, of fire, and they would literally throw their children into the fire as an act of worship and as a sacrifice to this God. God says, we're not going to call this the Valley of Topheth anymore. But in verse 32, he says, we're going to call it the Valley of Slaughter. Because here, you're going to die. God brings about capital punishment, and that's what's going to happen with Babylon. What does it look like? It looks like death. In verse 32, he says it's going to be so bad there aren't going to be any, enough burial grounds, and your bodies are just going to be piled in this valley of slaughter, and birds are going to eat your bodies, which, by the way, was like the, the most shameful thing for an ancient Jew to, to not have a burial place. You're, you're going to die, and it's going to be a shameful kind of death. And then he goes on in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and he says, the, the kings and the priests and the prophets, remember the people who don't speak the word of God, those people? Well, they're going to be, their bones are going to be brought out of the graves, and they're going to be laid before, I love this in verse 2, he says they're going to be spread before the sun and the moon and the host of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after and which they have worshipped. God is saying, I'm going to take the bones of those who abandon my word, the leadership of Israel, and I'm going to spread them before all of their gods, and I'm going to sit back, and I'm going to see what their gods do. There is one God that can take bones and put them back together and breathe, breathe life back into them. Their idols can't do anything. That's the point that he's making here. It's going to be so bad, finally, in verse 3 of chapter 8. He says, those who lived are going to wish they died. Death, he says, shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family. Now, some read these passages and and others 
usually in the Old Testament. And they say, God is so mean. Why does God have to be so mean in the Old Testament? Have you ever heard anybody say that or ask that question? Well, then we read verses like verse 31. They were building altars to burn their children. Family, tell me who's mean. Was God wrong? We don't understand sin when we think God is being mean. The point for Israel is that God requires faithful obedience, not just simply religious rituals. And that's a point that we need to take home today. God doesn't require religious rituals of us alone. And therefore, we're okay. But God wants us to recognize His presence and to live faithfully before Him. To live as obedient sons and daughters of God. So, let's kill bad religion right now. Alright? In our hearts, let's put it to death. How do we do it? Here's my two points, Chris. Alright? Number one, cherish God's presence. Not just simply religious rituals. And number two, cultivate obedience not just simply religious rituals. Can we break those down for a minute? First, cherish God's presence, not just religious rituals. There was a husband who knew that his wife loved him, knew that she was faithful, like she was the kind of woman that wasn't going anywhere, and he took advantage of her. He started staying out late, going to happy hour, hanging out with some people from work, one thing led to another, ended up in his first affair. After the first affair, she forgave him. They got some counseling together. He was exposed. He was embarrassed by it. Then it happened again. And after the third time, he was gone for a couple days. Now, he never would have believed this, but when he came home, his wife was gone. Blew his mind. He couldn't believe it. He was angered. How can she leave me? What a fool, isn't he? That's the story of Israel. They think they can just do whatever they want to do, and because, remember, what do they have right there? They got the temple where they practice their religious rituals. So because they got the temple, they think God's going to always be here. He's not going anywhere. I got church on Sunday. I got my Bible to read in the morning. I've got my practices that I do, so I can live however I want and know that when I wake up in the morning and I read my psalm for the day, I'll be good to go. God says, look, I want you to cherish my presence, not just simply your religious rituals. Let me show this to you in the text here. Look at verse 12. He says, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Well, now what's Shiloh? Shiloh was the first worship center of Israel. That was where they had the tent, where they would go and worship God. Before David built the temple, and before the worship of God was moved to Jerusalem, it was focused there in Shiloh. What God is essentially saying first is, I away the sin of the world. His life was given so that we might be.
away the sin of the world. His life was given so that we might be made whole. He died for sinners so that sinners might have life. We go to Him. That's how we get out of this cycle. We go to Christ, and we recognize that He is the temple. He is the presence of God. And He is the Lamb that was slain for us. Oh, and He's also the priest that intercesses for us and brings us before God. We go to Christ. If you're not a Christian, I plead with you this morning, run to Christ. Stop all of your rituals. Stop all of your sacrifices and find Christ. And then everything else that we do is just geared and and lines us up for a life passionately following Christ. Does that make sense? I wonder, even in your evangelism, do you invite people into a life of religious rituals, or do you bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ? What are you introducing them to? A to-do list? This is the Christian life. Hey, you can go ahead and be like me and do these things? That's law, friends. I mean, invite them to church. It can be a means. Get them to read the Bible with you. That can be a means. But what we're trying to do is invite our friends to meet Jesus so that they might know the hydration that the Holy Spirit brings into their life through the work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, my second point. Secondly, (laughs) cultivate obedience, not just simply religious ritual. So cherish God's presence and cultivate obedience to God, not just simply your religious rituals. Four ministers gathered outside of an abortion clinic recently. Now, why would four ministers gather outside an abortion clinic? Some might do it to protest. Others maybe to pray. Others maybe to minister to women. Well, these four ministers on January 29th gathered outside of an abortion clinic to pray God's blessing on the clinic. Now, this is in light of all of the recent uh, 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 news about 20-week abortions. You guys probably have seen seen this in the news. And it was an action taken by uh, four different ministers so-called Christian ministers who came to bless the work uh, of this abortion clinic. And they prayed this. I want to just read this to you. They said, God of grace and God of glory, in whom we move and live, may they, meaning the, the, the clinic, may they always know that all they do is for thy glory. Obedience to Scripture means nothing to these ministers. It means nothing to them if they can pray that prayer. They're finding their safety in the fact that they pray this prayer wearing long robes and that they go to a cathedral on Sundays and stand behind a huge lectern. Because we have this rich tradition of our denomination, because we have the rich eloquence of our 
of our, of our, of our gatherings, then therefore we are okay. Without wrestling with what does obedience to Scripture look like. Let me just hang out here for one second. Imagine if I were to tell you that historic research shows that that 600,000 babies a year were sacrificed to Melech in the Valley of Topheth. We would say, wow, horrendous. That's why God brought this kind of judgment. But what if I were to say 600,000 babies a year are sacrificed to the gods of abortion in America every year? We say, Joel, stop being so political. It's telling when you read lists of people groups who are oppressed and you don't see the unborn on that list. Now, friends, like I, I, I said, was it last week I said this? Two weeks ago, maybe? Some, some sisters in our church have had an abortion. And so I, I, I talk about this, I, I, I talk about this with great care, knowing the, the challenges and the guilt that that can leave. Uh, in someone. And I will also say this, for those of you who have not had an abortion, talk to these sisters, and they'll tell you the reality of what you face. They'll be the first to, to stand up on this issue. Like, I don't think we can look at the injustice happening here and ignore injustice over here and just explain it away because of some kind of political mumbo-jumbo. We either stand for the oppressed or we don't. And, and here's the thing. My job, I'm not a pastor of America. All right? I am never one, as you know, to stand up and say, you know, America needs to repent. Man, America has always needed to repent. How old is this country? That's the message we should have been preaching for the last however many hundreds of years. <laughs> Yes, of course. Well, that's not the issue today. Our sins just change. But I'm a pastor of a church. And I need to help us frame the way we think about things. And if, <laughs> God is awesome. And if we can, as a, as a church, if we can recognize like there are justice issues that we need to be aware of and encourage members toward or against, this is one of them. I recently heard of a story, I, I believe it'll be shared eventually, uh, maybe, we'll see. I, I heard of a story in this church of how uh, a, a young lady was considering abortion and some church members were able to talk her out of it. Praise God for that. It's because people get justice. People get mercy. Now, all of this is, is a matter of obedience, isn't it? I mean, we, we're, we're fueled by the fact that God, uh, David said that the Lord knit me together in my mother's womb. Like that was the Lord's doing. Knew you, knew David, knew us while we were in the mother's womb. That, that's, it means we're, we're human. The Lord says, don't throw your babies to, the, to any altar. <laughs> this is a matter of obedience. Now, this isn't the only issue of obedience. This isn't the only sin. It just so happens to be one that's addressed here. But I want to just broadly apply this to all sins. Cultivate obedience to Christ, not just our religious rituals. 
Don't just take heart in the fact that we've got some religious practice going on and that we can then do whatever we want to do with the rest of our lives. This is a matter of obedience. Now, why uh, does God say in verse 21, just go ahead and do your sacrifices? He says, add your burnt offerings to the sacrifices, eat the flesh. He's saying, just go ahead and perform your sacrifice. God is basically saying, I'm done. Like, he's giving them over to their religious rituals. Just do your thing, keep your churches running, uh, 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 you know, write books, draw a big audience, do your thing. But I'm done. Why does he say that? Well, he says in verse 24, he tells us why. He says, it's because they did not obey or incline their ear. Because they've got all this religious stuff going on, but they don't have obedience. Family, don't confuse religious practice with Christ-like obedience. We can't simply live however we want to live and just simply assume that God is always going to be present in our lives. Now, in Matthew 21, Jesus is standing in the temple, and he actually takes the same verse out of uh, Jeremiah 7, and he applies this to the religious leaders in the temple. I don't know if that phrase rung a bell when Carde read it earlier. But he says that you've made this place, you've turned this place into a den of robbers. Jesus applies that some years later to his own day. As he's standing in the temple, what does he see there? He sees oppression. He sees injustice. He sees the poor being taken advantage of. He sees the blind and the lame not even allowed to enter into the presence of God. The weak are exposed. And Jesus says, you guys have ruined this. You've got all of your religious rituals. Actually, more than I required. And you've turned it, through doing so, into a den of thieves. Jesus is saying this generation looks a lot like Jeremiah's generation. And I wonder if he would say that today. What is our hope? Let me just close with this. This is our hope. The Valley of Topheth was renamed renamed what? The Valley of Slaughter. Do you know, fast forward, a couple hundred years, we get into the time of Jesus. That valley was renamed again. You know what it was called during Jesus' day? It was called the Valley of Gehenna. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with, with New Testament, but when Jesus talks about hell, what does he refer to? Gehenna. The Valley of Gehenna, where these sacrifices were performed, where slaughter took place, where bodies rotted. What Jesus is doing for the priests and the prophets of his day, he's saying, this generation looks a lot like Jeremiah's generation, and your destination is the same place. The Valley of Gehenna, a.k.a. hell. What is our hope? Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. 
Turn there if you'd like. Jesus says this. Jesus says this. I am the living one. Everybody say living one. As opposed to the dead one. I am the living one. And he says this. I was dead. And now look. (laughs) I love it. I'm alive. Forever. And then he repeats it. And ever. And then he says this, and behold, I hold the keys of hell. Who's the Lord of hell? It ain't the devil. Who has authority over hell, over Gehenna, over the the valley of slaughter? It's Christ himself. And Jesus invites us, he says this, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest. Peace. Eternal life, forever and ever, not in the valley of slaughter, but in the kingdom of God. I love the next line in Matthew 21 after Jesus curses the temple and the religious leaders. The very next line, he says says this. It says, and he, uh, it, it says the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. Isn't that amazing? Those who are oppressed, those who are the weak, those who are the vulnerable, they are the ones who have ears to hear. They are the ones who say, yes, I'm broken and I'm in need of help. Those thick in their religious rituals don't get it. They think they have eyes and they think they can walk. It's the lame that get it. It's the blind that get it question for you this morning. Are you blind and lame? (laughs) Are you oppressed by sin? Do you recognize that you are the weak? That you are the vulnerable? Do you recognize when you see Jesus that he is your friend? He is your helper. He is your savior. He's calling for you to come. Come to him. Come to him. And know that he has taken all of the valley of slaughter on his own shoulders on the cross for you. When we see this passage and we see God's wrath for injustice and for sin, what that leads to is seeing the glory of Christ hanging on the cross because there he paid it all for us. He took the Gehenna that we deserve so that we might be set free, filled with the Holy Spirit, in love and obedience with the Father. In fellowship and in relationship with our brother, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we could be in your word. We ask that you would seal these things in our hearts that we might be remade and look like Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.